One of my earliest memories about Christmas doesn't have anything to do with presents or with food or with family or with church. I have those two, but this memory has to do with windows. What I remember is driving home from my grandparents' house on the peninsula back to Oakland. It's always late at night. We've pulled, we've been pulled away from the games with our cousins, trying out each other's toys, or jumping on the bed in the spare room until it breaks. There are hasty goodbyes, and soon my parents wrestling us through the crisp, dark night and into the faithful station wagon. And through the darkened streets we drive. What I remember is intently looking out the car window and gazing into the windows of the homes in the neighborhoods as we drive to Highway 101. And I remember looking in and catching glimpses of Christmas trees and dinner tables, some of them filled, some of them empty. And I remember looking and wondering, who are they? Who are these people? What are their lives like? Is what I see through that window as beautiful and cheery as it looks? I suppose those memories are one of the reasons that I was so drawn to this idea of a living Advent calendar, of turning the windows of all Solzian's homes into the windows of a calendar. Windows at night help us to see into a home in unexpected ways. Now, I don't know what it's like for others to make one of these Advent windows, but I know for us it involved a fair amount of conversation. Now, I'm going to set aside for the moment the ask that I made of my family to place over 2,000 squares of very small pieces of six shades of blue tissue paper onto contact paper. And, and really um, get to this message, right? Because this is something that we um, struggled with. Because we wanted to make sure that the message we were showing to our neighborhood mattered to us deep down. That it was a true glimpse of what we are waiting for. Part of why windows draw us in is because of the light that they shine out. And in this practice, this Advent, we have been asking all Solzians to share with each other and with those who pass by what they are waiting for, what they are longing for in an Advent like none other that we have ever experienced. Here's what we've seen so far in these windows. Once again, this Advent, we are waiting. Oh, how we are waiting. Waiting for a vaccine. Waiting to go back to school. 
waiting to go back to work, waiting to go back to church, waiting to visit family, waiting to feast again together. And we are longing, longing for the light to guide us, longing for healing to be felt, longing for new beginnings to emerge, longing for hope and love and peace and justice on this earth, longing for dance parties and for dinner parties. And God bless us. We are just longing for hugs, big hugs. Now, I love and appreciate my neighbors, but this year I am just not feeling the ho-ho-ho that I see in windows on our street. I'm longing for something truer, something deeper, and so each evening at 545, and in this I know I'm not alone, I, I have an almost visceral desire to see what next we are waiting for to see what next we will give witness to. I think I've said this already, but I have to say again how grateful I am to be spending these weeks right now with the words of the prophet Isaiah. Because week after week after week, these words have been balm and they have been inspiration. And this week is just is no different. In this section that uh, we hear, it's known as Third Isaiah, we are given a glimpse of what the prophet sees as salvation. And what I find so compelling about this vision is it's not simply a vision of salvation and the hereafter, which we hear so much about in North American Christianity. The salvation of God as witness to in Isaiah, is a quality of life that reflects God's desires for us here and now. Salvation isn't known as a state of existence after we die, but as a way of living, of participating in the just and compassionate life of God now. As one biblical scholar has said, God's deliverance God's salvation is real and tangible and this-worldly. It is known when debts are wiped away, when slaves are freed, when fields are allowed to rest, when land is returned. And with the comfort of these words also comes challenge. Because after Isaiah shows us what God does, Healing, liberty, release, comfort. The prophet then asks us how we are going to participate in this salvific living. How are we tangibly turning our attention to those who are named as recipients of this good news? Those who are oppressed, brokenhearted, imprisoned mournful? How will people see in us the salvation of our God?
Several years ago, a man named Craig Antico was making a lot of money in his family's business. But it wasn't the kind of business that he felt comfortable sharing at dinner parties. He would often say that he was a, uh, a resolution manager, which for him was a polite way of saying debt collector, and to be more specific, medical debt collector. As you may know, half of all debt in the United States is medical debt. And there is a trillion dollars of medical debt that is unpayable. That is, the people who owe it, often with debts of $6,000 or $10,000, debts that were accrued for hospital bills after a stroke or a series of migraines, even with insurance. A trillion dollars of debt in this country is unpayable because people cannot afford to pay it. And when the hospitals can't collect on this debt, they sell the debt for five cents on the dollar. And medical debt collectors like Craig and Tico buy the debt and then attempt to collect the full amount. Craig didn't like it, but it was the family business. And he was making money, and he didn't want to leave it. As it turns out, Craig and his business partner, Jerry Ashton, worked in New York City right near an Occupy Wall Street site. And some years ago, Jerry became curious. And so he walked over and started attending some of the Occupy meetings. And he became compelled by the teachings about the crushing effects of debt in this country, especially medical debt. I kind of feel like it might have been um, like those people down by the river, the River Jordan, who heard John the Baptist preaching from the prophet Isaiah and then realized in a moment that something in their life needed to change. Because what happened is that uh, Jerry became convinced, converted, you might even say, by this radical message of economic liberation. And then he converted Craig. And then they had a, a decision to make, and it ended up being one of the hardest decisions of their lives. Because they left the debt-collecting business and started forgiving it. The challenge was, as they've articulated, it was how do you make money as a debt forgiver? Well, they started a nonprofit that was dedicated to clearing medical debt. And it was very slow going. In fact, to pay their own bills, they racked up credit card debt. They borrowed from family. They sold a beloved guitar. This is where I see Ed getting very nervous. They hawked family heirlooms. A couple of their kids stopped going to college for a while. And then something uh, kind of miraculous happened. The journalist John Oliver heard about their work. 
and using their nonprofit, RIP Medical Debt, he bought $15 million of the medical debt of Texans for $60,000 and freed them from it. The publicity from that show changed everything. And off Craig and John and many others went. Buying debt for a penny on the dollar and forgiving it. As John Ashton says, I'm reformed. I'm now a predatory giver. They were overjoyed when they freed 250,000 people from just under $600 million. But now, thanks to the collective efforts of many, many people, including over 400 churches, they have freed nearly 2 million people from $3 billion of medical debt. Now, Craig and John are very clear that the economics of health care need to change. As they say, we know that our work is very, very important, but it takes care of the people who are wounded and on the battlefield. We really do need to stop the wars. But at this moment, that's not where we're positioned. But in this moment, they and many, many others are now windows to salvation. They are witnesses to the jubilee of our Lord, to the liberation of those who are bound by debt. This is witness of comfort and liberation and challenge. Because this week, I've been wondering, are people able to see the light of salvation through my words and actions? Is what I have up on my window actually indicative of how I live my life? How transparent is my life in binding up the brokenhearted? and repairing the cities. For as much as we can be windows to the light, we can also be the wall that blocks it. We don't simply watch through windows. In fact, we have the opportunity to become windows. We are the way that the light shines in this world. Do you remember a time when the light shined through someone, when you were able to witness God's salvation in and through them in real and tangible ways? What did it feel like to see that, to be swept up in it? Where is that happening right now in your life? How might you take part in repairing the ruins? 
in raising up what has been devastated. This season and in the season to come, we place our trust that the light is shining. Because friends, that's what light does. May our lives, our witness, our words, our actions be the windows for all the world to see.